Welcome to another edition of Packy Chat. Uh, this week we are lucky enough to have a guest again. So all you listeners uh, are probably happy to get a break from listening to the four of us. But this week we uh, invited Dr. Ellen Wiedner on, and I'm sure anybody that works with elephants knows Dr. Ellen. Uh, when in doubt, you have a medical problem, call Ellen. Talk to Ellen. It's the first thing everybody says. What did Ellen say? She's been around a lot of elephants and knows a lot about a lot of different things, and she's a great resource for everybody working in the elephant world. So uh, it was our honor to have the, spend the next hour talking to Ellen. We appreciate her uh, taking the time to kind of shoot the shit with us again i say it every week but for those of you that listen to us we really appreciate it i hope you're spreading the word because our listening uh, our listening audience is slowly growing and we appreciate that that's due in part mainly to all of you guys spreading the word so again uh, i guess enough of me talking let's uh hear what uh, dr weedner had to say uh this week thanks everybody for listening i think uh because the majority of the people that seem to be listening our keepers, I think it'd be helpful if we talked um, on what what we can do as managers to be helpful to take care of our elephants from the medical side. You know, I know you've been around elephants for a day or two and uh, consult all over the place. What are things you wish uh, elephant managers did to make your job easier or better? I think it's still a matter of communication with the vet team. And I think sometimes that um, it's as much the the vet's responsibility as the elephant managers, but I I think developing that conversation is really important. And right now I see that um, one of the things zoos seem to be doing is that they're, they're moving people around a lot. You know, I, when I first started with this, it seemed as if, you know, you started in one department and you just kept moving your way up and you stayed in that department. And now I see, I, I think they're called floaters at some zoos or uh, I can't remember what the words are, but they'll go from birds one day to rhinos another day. They'll get into elephants. And the problem is that um, while they may be wonderful keepers, they don't necessarily know um, those animals really well. So I I think it's really important for elephant managers to get consistency, you know, even if if the zoo mandates that people are just constantly moving around, that there has to be somebody who really knows the animals um, and that that person feels comfortable going to the veterinarian and saying, hey, I think we have a problem. You know, and in many ways, I think that that issue comes from higher up in management uh, where those decisions about moving people around are. But I still think it's the managers who need to make sure there's some consistency. What's the best way to communicate with our vets? And and I say that because, you know, sometimes um, some vets can get defensive if you know the old Ellen said, or I heard this at PEM, or how, how do you wish people communicated with you to get stuff across? We actually have a really good relationship with all the vets at, at our zoo, um, and we can have pretty open dialogue. Um, sometimes it's not pretty, but we have, we have good dialogue. But that took a lot of time to get there. Um, so how do you have those conversations to uh, point things out or you know, sometimes I think the elephant managers might be more in touch with what's going on elephant medicine-wise than some of the vets. The vets have to worry about the whole collection. The elephant managers, elephant managers have to worry about just elephants. So sometimes they're more up-to-date on things that's going on. And how do you have that conversation with your vet to bring them up to speed? It's telling to me that you say that it took a long time to get there and that you can have conversations that sometimes aren't pretty. Um, I think that's a, a function of your zoo. I, I think there are zoos that foster relationships and zoos that are very threatened by them. But I, I would agree with you, you know, the, the big 
thing about zoo vets is that they are the ultimate generalist. You know, they are expected to be able to take care of everything in the zoo. You know, I, I heard a, a zoo vet who actually became an astronaut and he gave us talk and he said that it would be zoo vets who would have to provide the health care when we made contact with extraterrestrials, you know, and I thought, great, another species where I have to figure out what tentacle to put the Doppler on, you know, that kind of thing. But the reality is that zoo vets become comfortable with a couple of taxonomic groups. For me, it was hoofstock, elephants, real big things, uh, a lot of cats. Um, I don't feel as comfortable working with a lot of the bird species. Um, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly good at it, but I don't do the kind of numbers that make me feel super confident. So I think it's important if you're at a zoo with multiple vets to figure out which member of the vet team does have an affinity for your animals and likes going in there. Um, you know, eventually all vets have to become competent at the animals you have, but there's going to be somebody, whether it's a technician or a, or the vet or the head vet who really likes that species. And I do think, you know, elephants are, are quick, you know, they're in, they're one that, that a lot of people feel affectionate to, but not a lot of people feel comfortable with them. And, and so when you find somebody who's like that, you, you foster that relationship. I know that's called vet shopping, but I don't mean it that way. I mean that you have somebody in that group and, you know, if it's only two vets, you don't have a lot of people to work with, but somebody is going to have a, a, a relationship and that's the one that you want to foster. A lot of people don't know where to start. So if, from that standpoint, what are some important behaviors that, you know, that you feel that are important from a veterinary standpoint that we may not even think about that would help, help you guys out from that, from that aspect? You know, I think that what you need to do is pretty well laid out, you know, being able to look at various body parts, open the mouth, um, look at feet, uh, get blood reliably, getting urine reliably. I mean, all of that stuff is out there. Um, and, you know, you guys talk about it at PEM. It's listed on the AZA website. If, if you know, people go to any EMA meeting, they'll hear about this stuff. But a lot of it still isn't done. And, and I think, um, you know, that's one of the things that I don't really understand, or I, or I guess I get frustrated by. Uh, you'll talk to some, I'll talk to somebody and, and they'll say, oh yeah, our elephant can get blood. And then, you know, three months go by and nobody's gotten blood. And I don't know, like, like, you know, the moon has to be in Sagittarius and then the elephant will give blood. And to me, just because you can get blood out of your elephant twice a, me a, a year doesn't mean your elephant is trained for blood. So I think, you know, some of it has to do with what's your standard? You know, yeah, the elephant's trained for blood, but it doesn't feel like doing it, or it doesn't like this keeper, or it, you know, you're out of the little pink needles, and she's scared of the color green. You know, there's always seems to be a reason, even though, you know, ostensibly on paper, the elephant's trained. And so I think there's a gap between what sometimes people in the barn think is possible and what is actually possible. And, you know, as a grumpy veterinarian, that does get frustrating sometimes. So we, we've talked about this in previous podcasts, too, is about um, um, not understanding um, why some of what we refer to in our career as the basics, what's happened um, for that. And we have not really come up with an answer as well. You know, us on this Right now, we're all alpha managers. Um, we've gone through, we've come to the conclusion of the, it's not basics. I mean, it, it is basics, but it's really important because I think each one of our careers, we've gone through a situation where um, it was proven to us that we weren't successful as we thought we were. And unfortunately, we had to learn hard lessons. Um, as an industry, we don't want people to keep learning these hard lessons because it's cost it's coming to the cost of our elephants. 
um, I would, you know, we're beating our heads against the wall. And it's like over and over again, we're saying the same things. You have to reliably get this. You have to get reliably get that. And a lot of time now with EHV becoming more of a point, now we're seeing people saying, ah, now I see that. Unfortunately, an elephant had to die before we saw that. Um, it's not like the stories aren't out there. You know, EMA, PEM, you hear the stories. It's in our network. No one's hiding their failures. But we don't know what to do about um, getting everybody to try to learn about the failures. And quite honestly, you know, for me personally, um, I've been scared to death hearing about this EHV. I got scared straight for, you know, for knowing about African elephants for over 20 years. I was just like those poor bastards who have Asian elephants. That sucks for them. Um, and lucky before we had our EHV case, I was scared straight. But it didn't have to happen to me, but unfortunately it happened to my other friends. How do we get people to be scared straight more? Because um, I think that the information's out there. Uh, there's no lack of that. There's no lack of um, strategies out there. And you hit the nail on the head. You know, um, we don't know why. Well, I, I think the other side of the coin is there is a plan B. And the plan B is to sedate. I've done enough elephant sedations that I feel pretty comfortable with it. It's still, you know, it's sphincter tightening at times, occasionally sphincter loosening. Um, but, you know, I, I do feel comfortable with it, and that's an option. A lot of vets aren't, and, and I respect that they, they take it seriously. But I have often thought that, um, you know, there are definitely situations that it is hard. And these EEHV cases are the example. The elephant doesn't feel well. It's often a youngster. That's when the training breaks down. So I also think that vets have to be comfortable offering the option of sedation. I think elephant barn staff has to be comfortable that the vet knows what they're doing with sedation. And I also think that the barn has to have appropriate policies because it's fine and dandy to sedate your elephant, but if your policy is that under no circumstances, even if the elephant's sedated, do you ever go in with the elephant? Well, then what's the point? And so, um, you know, those are, those are things that need to be addressed. And I, from the vet standpoint, you know, there have been um, special sessions at the zoo vet meetings on how to sedate elephants, but you know, reading it is, it's like reading a surgery textbook. You can read it a million times. It doesn't mean you know how to do the surgery. Um, and I'm not sure how you get around it. Uh, but, but having vets who are comfortable with doing sedation, having staff who's comfortable with it. You know, Daryl and I uh, got together to assist a facility uh, because they, they just wanted to have a vet who knew you know, had done enough sedations and they wanted Daryl there because he was comfortable with rope work, you know, if they needed to do it. And, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe making ourselves available to assist so that that's more of an option, but I, it's a, it's a real problem. And, and it isn't always, you know, somebody's fault. They didn't, didn't train for it. Uh, sometimes situations are, are difficult. I guess I'm talking more about when, you know, you're like due to get your, your hormone sample and everyone's saying, oh yeah, the elephant's trained. You know, it's not an emergency um, and you find that they aren't. And But I, I guess the two of them are related. It's just that there are options and I think we have to get comfortable with those other options. You know, meaning the stuff that you're talking about, like getting getting the blood for hormone uh, to run hormone essays or whatever, I get that. That's part of the behavioral components, and that's something that that we should be doing. Um, but to to go over to what Vern says, how do we, you know, what can we do to be more proactive to be better prepared for when the shit hits the fan? Because that's the stuff when I think we really need to have better trained elephants or elephants that are more resilient to everything that's going on. And I think our elephants are pretty well trained. And we still, we sedate for things. I mean, you, you have to, when you're doing, when you're poking and prodding two, three times a day for several days, behaviors break down. I mean, the nice thing is, is that they have a pretty solid foundation. So we get them back fairly quickly um, after the fact so that we can then go back to routine monitoring for things. But we're lucky in our case because we really, we really, talk to our vets a lot and say, hey, these are the things that uh, we heard at EMA that's important that's 
that uh, you know we heard in the industry are important regardless. So this is these are things that we know we, we need to be prepared for. How do how do other places get this information? Like are there I know there's some elephant sessions that do that. Correct? But but then yeah. who who leads them and how do you get the right topics to be presented at Zubat? You know, the Zubat meeting is a, a meeting that has eight minute talks. You know, I come from, from internal medicine where you, you know, when you go to the big conference, it's an hour, hour and a half long talk. I, I still don't know any other meeting that gets, you know, 500 talks in. But I, I also think that, you know, EMA, may not be the right environment because it encompasses so many different uh, interests. But I, I actually am starting to think that there needs to be a vet group focused on the megavertebrates. I, I, I think so because in, in many regards, those are the ones that your zoo, you know, your zoo is known for. That's what people come for to see the giraffe, the elephant, the rhino. Um, and those are the animals that so few vets are comfortable with. And, and it's not really anybody's fault there, too. You know, it used to be that when you, you worked at a zoo, there were tons of hoofstock. And you, you figured out what you were doing with little tiny hoofstock so that, you know, by the time the giraffe got sick, you were comfortable with the easy ones. You know, now so many zoos are just the, the big deal animals and zoo vets don't really get to learn on a Steenbach or, you know, a Tommy or something like that. And, you know, the first, the first big hoofstock they, they work on is, is a crashing giraffe. That's just brutal. So I think it's sort of similar for, for the elephants, you know, it's such a, elephants are kind of their own specialty, working with some of these animals, their own specialty. And there probably does need to be a journal a, a conference, even just like a Facebook group that is devoted to elephant medicine, or you know, even maybe megavertebrate medicine. So we had we had kicked around. I think it was Tracy that said after PEM two one year that that this should be offered just for vets, you know, with elephants in front of them to to talk about elephant stuff, actually with a, with an elephant in front of you. Um, I think. You know, I think that's a great idea, but I also think going forward, I don't know when the next time travel is going to be open. Zoos are going to have money to send people to, to learn this kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, the zoo vet meeting was actually still going to occur until yesterday. I think it was when they sent out an announcement that it would be um, virtual. Right now, meetings are, you know, a disaster. Nobody can travel. Travel is still awful. But this is a long-standing problem, and um, not really sure what the answer is. I think the truth is that, especially for for zoos where there's only one or two vets, you know, having a, a conference that they go to is problematic because you know they they have to go for AZV or AZA or something like that, and. The zoos, I think, are unlikely to find extra funds to go to yet one more meeting. I do think things like Zoom, which I understand has big meeting capability, I think that's, in fact, how all these online meetings are being done might be an option. And no, it's not as good as having an elephant in front of you, but nothing is as good as having an elephant in front of you. Do you hear that crunching noise? That's not me. That's the dog. He, uh, he got a marrow bone today, and he's delighted with himself. Do, do you see that with other species? Like, So for me, piggybacking off of what Vernon said, it's kind of a lack of um, a sense of urgency for programs because they're like, oh, oh kind of it won't happen to us. I mean, it does, and they're like, oh, shit, we should have done something. Um, do you see that with other species, or is it kind of just elephants because of the political game that comes with them? No, I see it. And, and some of the groups have done a really good job, like gorillas with all the heart disease. I mean, there's all sorts of uh, groups um, that, uh, that are dealing with, you know, getting, getting um, 
the samples. There's echocardiologists who will go out and, and do uh, gorillas. Actually, I work now with a big group of chimpanzees, and we have cardiologists who come in regularly and because and, they, too, get a lot of heart disease and, um, you know, with with the gorillas, not so much with the chimps. There's there's uh, training so that they'll present their heart uh, against the bars and and won't need sedation. So yeah, there is a lot of it, um, and I think that it it works okay. But there aren't diseases right now. I mean, yes, gorillas. Any of the great apes can get sudden death from from a, a heart related problem, but None of the other species right now of the zoo species has a disease like EEHV. Interestingly, I'd say in the domestic animals, I mean, parvovirus is a horrible disease and can present like EEHV and you better do something right away or your dog is going to die. Just distemper can present that way. Um, and, you know, when you look at the kind of education that's, given to pet owners, you know, this is when you have to go see your bet. It's constant, it's unending, you know, it's, it's, it's advertisements in your local newspaper and, and these days uh, general practitioners are putting out all sorts of messages. It's a constant reminder. Um, I don't know that that's possible in the zoo world with elephants. That bone what? sounds really good. You know, one thing I wondered, you mentioned about um, how the gorilla is kind of pulled together. I'm curious that in the elephant community, we know we have these discussions about how much time we spend training versus letting them be elephants and so much. I've never been to a gorilla con conference before. Maybe it gets really heated and throwing bananas at each other. I don't know what it's like. But are they really... Um, is that discussion happening in other species is that we can't spend much time with the gorillas because we need them to be with their gorilla family and we have to let them be gorillas. That is something that we hear over and over in elephants. Do we hear that with these other species? I work with these chimpanzees and boy, there is uh, wow. It, it's like a chimp society when we're down there and, and, you know, forget throwing bananas. I, you know, there are times when you are pretty sure one of the keepers is going to throw manure at you. I, it, it gets heated. Yes. I think, you know, when you're passionate <laughs> about things, uh, things can get heated. Well, there's a couple components, too, to this. As you know, you were talking about the, 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 the knowledge and the proficiency about how to treat these things and what to do with it. But the other side of it is, you know, and actually when you were talking about hoofstock and things, there's a huge, you know, I think we've talked about this a different time or maybe in class or something, but there's a huge capacity for the ability to train elephants and great apes through some of these um, problems that we know exist. And, and also um, not even to train them through the, pro the process of dealing with the actual problem, but to train them through the surveillance and the monitoring for when these things happen. So I think a lot of it is um, what you're able to do um, versus knowing how to do it, right? So our job as the elephant managers is to provide the access. And so there's a whole myriad of things that we can do to make sure that that's normal and part of the everyday routine so that when the chips are down, you know, Daryl said earlier, we have a, a solid foundation and it's not something weird. Um, you know, I often say, you know, for instance, like restraints, you know, people say, oh, well, every time I pull out restraints, that's because something bad happened, you know? And I said, well, you know, we should, we should be doing that as a normal part of your day. I said, you know, every, every time I've ever had the flu in my life was the day I brushed my teeth. It never made me afraid to brush my teeth, right? Because I just, I don't think about it. I just do it twice a day and that's, that's what we do. So if we layer in some of these training and some of the, um, you know, bolster our ability to, to, to uh, treat and or see some of these problems coming, I think that goes a long way in addition to have you know, the vets um, have the un understanding on how to treat these things and the sharing and everything else that goes with it. So that uh, same thing for us on the husbandry side is to share um, what we know and share our abilities. But that's where it gets sticky because sometimes just the sharing of ideas and um, opinions, I guess, becomes a little bit divisive in, in that, you know, you, you're drawing conclusions about someone else's program or whatever. And, you know, again, as we sort of talked about here is that a lot of times then we get caught um, 
we get caught and it happens to us where we never thought we were going to and then we get into trouble but I just think the big thing for us is to make sure that we allow that that access and do as much as we can to um, you know obviously if we can't prevent the illness we can actually prevent um, the hiccups that go along with treating or, or discipline or actually have it you know I, I it's a bit of a compliment to Ellen but then a question as well you know every time when we were at PM when she when somebody was getting a presentation or something she was always taking notes and always on her computer reading papers and you know it's a it's a big compliment to her because I've tried to model myself a little bit after her always uh, wanting to learn more and and always wanting to be a better vet um, what what drives you what what's that fuel inside of you that uh, makes you want to do that this is the kind of question you ask like a beauty pageant. Yeah. <laughs> what drives you? I love elephants. I got blessed when Ringling hired me. I had no idea what I was doing. I literally couldn't tell the difference between an African and an Asian elephant, but I was just in love with them. And as a kid, you know, my parents used to bring, we, I, we, um, they'd bring me to Madison Square Garden and, and I didn't even want to watch the circus. I just wanted to hang outside with the elephants. And I don't know, they, it's a species that, it just grabs me It'll, the way it does you. I mean, that's what, why, you know, the bunch of us get along so well, because you guys, whenever you travel, you, you go check out the elephant department. And, you know, you all, you all have, have seen this, this technique and that technique, and you've attended this meeting and that meeting. It's the same thing. You know, vets do a lot with, you know, we, we have a lot of publications and we try and read them, but you guys do the same thing in terms of interacting with other people in the field, the, the EMA, the, the PEM, you know, when you, when you care about something a lot, you're driven to know more so you can do better by them. So, you know, elephants, elephants, make me want to be a better vet because I don't want to screw up because I didn't know something that was actually known. It's the same thing for you. When it comes to the, you know, diagnostics, you know, um, you're looking at elephant blood and looking for particular things, you know, if there's something that if, you know, all of us, if we wish our vets in our facility, if there's a couple of skills when it came to specifically elephants that we would really, really want our vets to have. Um, what are some of those things you think that would be extremely valuable for any zoo vet that has elephants in their collection? So I think it's really important for your vets to be willing to look at a blood smear under the microscope. Um, and and I've, I've really tried to emphasize this. Elephants you know, we, we always take those magic two tubes, right? The, the red top and the purple top, sometimes a green top. Um, and what we do when we send those tubes into the lab is we get numbers. But elephants, for some reason, the numbers don't change very quickly or very often. But what does change is the appearance of the cells. I can look at the, at the blood smear um, you know, which is just a monolayer of, of blood cells on a glass microscope slide. And if that thing was made fresh, you know, within five minutes of getting the blood and you put that under a microscope, I can tell you if it's a young elephant, probably if it has herpes virus, if it's an old elephant, I can tell you if it's got probably some, some of those long chronic problems that old elephants get. Um, those changes answer, you know, in, in elephants, sometimes we struggle to answer the question, is the elephant sick? And that sounds so stupid, right? What do you mean, is the elephant sick? But when all the blood work, all those numbers are normal, and, you know, maybe the elephant seemed a little off, it can be hard. Um, by looking at the cells, which change their shape, they sh change their appearance, uh, they change their staining category because we always, after you get the blood, you, you stain it with, with um, some nice purple, purple stains. That actually tells me as much about elephant health as 
almost anything else. So, um, you know, a lot of a lot of vets aren't comfortable looking at things under the microscope. And elephants are weird. They have weird cells. They, um, you know, they're 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 a little bit different. Um, but a, a vet who's willing to learn that is going to be able to tell you if your young elephant has herpes virus faster than the PCR gets back to you. That's something I wish more vets would do. I've lectured on it. I've published on it with colleagues. Um, whenever I talk to people about EEHV, I try and emphasize that, yes, go ahead and, t and get your viral loads by all means, you know, go spin your blood, but do a blood smear. It, it's the, uh, the, the presence of these cells called band heterophils, which look like a sausage squished in half. Um, the appearance of these giant platelets, uh, which are reactive, the, the presence of bubbles in the cells, that's a sign of toxicity. It's super, super easy to do. It's super quick, and it's really, really important in giving you a good sense of whether you have a problem or not. And vets also shouldn't be real quick to put all this blood into those fancy expensive machines they got you know in their lab because most of those machines are not reliable for elephant blood so that's the other reason to look at the the blood smear under the microscope is you can do those counts by hand you know just it's boring but yeah you can get them done and you can make sure that when the machine's telling you you have x number of whatevers you really do uh, elephant blood is so big and so strange that um, the machines often don't work very well. We talked a little bit about EHV, so let's stay on the topic for a minute. Um, from the from the clinician side of it, I guess. But one thing that you know we start to hear more and more, and, and I know we've done it, but we also throw the kitchen sink at them. What's your thought on fortified plasma? Um, so I believe plasma is really important in EEHV. Forget fortified plasma. You're talking, when you say fortified plasma about, are you talking about platelet-rich plasma or are you talking no. about infants who have been given? Like, uh, like, like fam. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like. I, I love the idea. I wish somebody could tell me how much fam cyclovir was actually in the plasma. That's what I can't figure out. Um, and to me, you know, it's a great idea. I would never argue against it. Um, but I think plasma is, is incredibly important. It, I'm almost starting to feel like plasma should probably be one of the things that's given as soon as you realize you have a real case or, you know, what, what they'll call hemorrhagic EEHV. Um, it, it provides all sorts of... Um, good stuff ranging and if, if you spin it so there are two ways to get plasma one is you can hang the bag and let gravity settle out the red blood cells in the plasma the plasma is on the top or you can spin it and if you have the ability to spin it you you have a facility you're working with uh, that has a blood blood banking centrifuge that's better plasma that's because it has platelets in it so usually when you hang stuff to to let gravity do its thing, the, you, you don't reliably get platelets. But when you spin it, you do. And a lot of those elephants do need that. But yeah, you know, I, I, I love the idea of fortified plasma. I love even more, you know, to know how much famcyclovir was in there. And, and the other side of the coin is, I don't think famcyclovir is doing that much. Uh, you know, so to me, just getting the plasma is, is maybe even more important. So I remember years ago when we had an issue and all we currently had to deliver was pro, uh, uh, yeah, frozen plasma. Um, and for whatever case it was, I don't, I don't remember if it was EHV or not, but um, you told us that we should use fresh over frozen. Um, but then for other things, non-EHV, you said that frozen was better than nothing. So what, can you explain what's the difference between frozen and fresh? And is there something, I hear the term thrown around of fresh frozen. Yeah. So, um, yeah, those are great questions. And um, so when you, when you extract 
blood out of an elephant. So elephant blood is fragile, just to begin with. Forget, you know, all the, that's why I always tell people to make the blood smear right away, because in about an hour, it starts turning into mush. When you get blood, um, the blood, the red blood cells go to the bottom and the plasma is up on the top. And um, many of the components of plasma are fragile. They, elephant blood seems to be more fragile. So in domestic animals, we know that platelets will only last a couple of hours. And anytime you put stuff into the fridge, you destroy platelet function even faster. So anything that's, uh, you know, just sort of tucked away, you're, you're immediately decreasing your platelets. The clotting factors, um, and elephants are, um, they have an, a, a slightly different clotting uh, cascade than other species, but we know in other species that the clotting factors start to disintegrate. And once you freeze plasma, it's good for a year, and uh, it, it has uh, no platelets at that point they're they're all gone and uh some of some of the the clotting factors are gone also F uh, that's fresh frozen plasma it's it's frozen within eight hours of collection so you're still getting stuff frozen plasma is lacking a lot of stuff it uh it's got uh, your albumin in it which is um is an important protein it's got various cytokines, but a lot of the really important stuff for coagulation are not there. And so the longer it stays in the freezer, the less you're going to get. And uh, that's why it becomes so important to, in elephants who have EHB, to, to use fresh because you're going to get all your clotting factors. If you've spun it, you're going to get platelets. Uh, and to get it as quickly as possible. That's the other thing that I think people may not understand is, okay, so you, 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 you got your donor and you got your, your, your plasma and now you're, you stick it in the refrigerator because you're not going to give plasma until six o'clock. And now that plasma has, you know, sat in the fridge for six hours and now most of your platelets are gone and it's no longer really truly fresh. You know, there are times when maybe whole blood is almost a better option. I, I am cautious about advising that because, uh, you know, a lot of places can't spin blood. They, they just don't have the ability and they can't get the, the, the plasma. So they want to use, you know, plasma that's been in the freezer for, for two years. And, and the other issue is very few uh, freezers and zoos have alarms. So nobody really is you know, checking to make sure that that plasma hasn't defrosted and been refrozen. Um, there's ways of when you, if you do freeze your plasma, you should actually set it upright and you should, um, you can put a kind of a rubber band around it because if you've had a, a um, had it defrosting, the, the plasma, the bag is going to change and you'll be able to realize that because the, the rubber band won't be there. What, what are we looking at when uh, EHV specific, treating an EHV case, uh, we were looking at something in the blood that suggested we should use whole blood instead of plasma? I'll give whole blood if we're starting, uh, starting to really drop hematocrit. Um, and, and sometimes hematocrit is the red blood cells, right? So I also sometimes recommend whole blood because it's so much faster. You know, get the blood, put a blood filter on it, give it to the elephant. And so if you're starting to lose multiple lines of cells as they're bleeding out, um, whole blood is a better option. I think the problem that I'm seeing now, because I've, I've, I've started to deal with some of these absolutely horrific cases as you know, we've all, we've all encountered them. In human medicine, um, multiple transfusions can lead to problems. I believe I am starting to see that issue, but I don't know what the cutoff is. And I also, I mean, there's times when you just have to pound the blood in there. Um, I, I think your little elephant was one of them and you start getting problems afterwards. Um, some of them can be very significant. 
uh, respiratory issues, kidney issues. We there are all these fancy acronyms uh, for what's happening, but it's almost like the the it, it's almost like an immune mediated thing. Uh, I think one of the things you and I chatted about is that your elephant was no longer compatible with other donors. That's a that's something that happens with multiple transfusions. So it also happens with um, a synthetic form of plasma called head of starch. Um, and I've, I've, I know I, I have had um, people use that. In, in EEHV, what I think is happening, or what is happening, is the vessels are getting leaky. And, and you know, the early stuff that leaks out might be some plasma and you can replace that. But when, when things get really leaky, they start losing albumin, that big protein that, that's such an important component. You could give all the plasma of all your elephants and you're not, it doesn't increase the albumin adequately to, to prevent further leakage out of the vessels. I'm, I'm kind of given a, hopefully a, an easy to understand version of this, but uh, head of starch is, is a synthetic, we call it a colloid because it's got a higher molecular weight and it, it actually can, can stop stuff from leaking out. The problem is it, it is more likely to have consequences if you keep using it. But if you have an elephant who's losing albumin like yours little one was, um, and you really need to, to get something in there to prevent further leakage, head of starch becomes your problem, uh, becomes your option, excuse me. I mean, I think at this point, I've been involved in about 40 cases of EEHV. And this is a very intensive care situation where we don't have the answers in part because we, we don't even understand normal elephant physiology. I mean, you know, the reason we can't give rectal fluids to any other animal without killing them. We can do it to elephants because their osmolarity, which is a, a, a measure of, you know, the particles in the blood is is lower than any other animal on the planet so we can give something like you know like rectal fluids it, none of it makes sense so the the problem is we're dealing with these incredibly complicated critical cases without even understanding how it works when it's normal it's been really interesting listening to the the medical news on the coronavirus uh, I, and I don't mean that, you know, elephants have anything to do with this, but you'd think of the speed that scientists have figured stuff out. You know, they were saying, oh, you know, uh, it's not spread by aerosol. Oh, wait, it's spread by aerosol. You know, kids don't get it. Oh, wait, kids get it and they get this really weird form of it. And, you know, like all this stuff has happened so quickly and they're already talking about a vaccine. Well, human physiology is pretty well understood. They're just wrestling with the virus. You know, in the elephants, we're, we're, there is so much we don't know. And so, uh, and, and you know, we have a very small elephant population. You know, if, if, if millions of people are getting a, a disease and you throw a lot of money at it, you can figure it out pretty quickly. I think the first case of EHV that we knew what it was was 1998, right? And then here we are more than 20 years later and we're still trying to figure out, you know, what's happening? What's the pathway of this virus? What, why is it affecting some elephants differently than others? We're really struggling. And so when I talk about, okay, this is when you use blood, this is when you, you do plasma, 40 cases, that sounds incredible, right? Incredible. You know, the average domestic cat and dog vet sees 40 animals in one day. They, they, can, they can figure stuff out a lot. It's, it's very difficult to know what's right by elephants because they're so strange to start with. But vets who are dealing with it, you know, they need to be prepared for, for giving plasma, for spinning plasma, for getting blood, for giving blood, for, you know, cross-matching repeatedly because that can change when elephants are really debilitated. And on top of that, you guys are dealing with the behavior issues. 
So besides EHV, um, you know, if we have more to talk about that, we can circle back around. Um, if we could wave our medical magic wand and eliminate or cure or treat the next thing besides EHV, what would be number two on our wish list? You know what? I wish we had better ability to image elephants, you know, Radi radiology and ultrasound are pretty difficult for except a few body parts. You know, we might be able to take a, a toe x-ray, but uh, we can't even do the two 90-degree views. I, I do wish that um, somebody could come up with like a, a CT that an elephant could walk into awake. Um, you know, they're starting to do these cool things for horses where they can just kind of be walked into them. And they, it looks like something out of the movie Cosmos and, uh, and you get an image. Um, I would love to have an ultrasound where I could actually look at the liver of an elephant, you know, uh, and, or, or, you know, not have to, have a three foot extension to get a vague glimpse of something that looks like a blob. You know, this is what the inside of the elephant looks like if you have glaucoma. It's, you know, you have the time you're just guessing. Um, some of the things that, you know, like uh, those pills that people swallow, the, the camera pills, so that they can take pictures all through your GI tract. I'd love to have one of those for an elephant. I think just the ability to do better diagnostics would be fantastic. Can you talk a little bit about blood types in elephants? Back when I started recommending that we give blood to elephants with EHV, I can't believe like we weren't just, do, well, we didn't know anything. So uh, that we were going to need to do transfusions. Um, I thought, well, we better go figure it out. And so um, I worked with a really amazing a veterinarian slash researcher named uh, Dr. Ann Hale, who uh, does a lot of blood banking research for all sorts of species. And uh, I was at Ringling at the time, and I think we collected blood from 50 elephants and cross-matched them. And in just that small sample, uh, we found at least seven different blood types and some of them were really antigenic mean meaning that you know you put this one with that one boom it's no good you don't want to transfuse um that was really interesting to me uh that elephants have preformed antibodies against other blood types that's like us like if you're a type a and somebody gives you type b blood you are in big trouble. You're going to have a terrible transfusion reaction because you actually have antibodies against that type B blood. And they're not, not all species do that. Um, cats do that, so you have to cross-match them. Most cats are, are type A. Most big cats are type A. There are a couple of weird cats, like some of those, um, I can't remember the breed, but it's the one with the orange eyes and and they have black fur, they're very beautiful. They're, they're often type B. Um, but tip, if you give the wrong blood transfusion to a cat, it, it'll die. But then there's things like cattle. There's like 350 different blood groups, but you don't usually have to worry about cross-matching them because none of them are antigenic. None of them are gonna really react with each other. So it was really interesting to find that elephants, you know, some of those antibodies, uh, some of those blood types were super um, cross-reactive. Um, to find seven different groups in a, in a bunch of 50, that seemed odd. Um, I know Dr. Hale was uh, going to start looking at African elephant blood groups, um, and I, I'm not sure where she is with that project. The other thing that's interesting about blood groups is that they're sometimes used in conservation projects to figure out how closely related, um, you know, different populations are. And, you know, you figure with elephants where everyone's trying to decide, is there a forest elephant, you know, pygmy elephants, blah, 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 blah. That would might be a useful thing. But, you know, the, the truth is that my study, and there was one that was done out of I think it was Thailand. Um, there, there. Not a lot of people are looking at blood groups, and and I think it. 
I think it needs to be looked at more because my concern is that there may be people, may, um, elephants may have more than one blood group. And that may be part of why sometimes cross-matching is difficult. Like humans might be type A and rhesus positive. Um, there may be secondary or tertiary blood groups that may make things difficult uh, in terms of the cross-matching. I do encourage people to, 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 to test um, before they transfuse. With plasma, because there's no red blood cells in there, it's much less of a risk. But um, if you're giving whole blood, I, I think it's pretty important. Is there an age, like, is there, does it matter how old the elephant is to cross-match? You know well, what I mean? I don't know. I mean, that's a great question. Typically, we're, we, your, your blood type is established in utero, and, and it doesn't change. But stuff can get added on, like junky little proteins, and so it, it can sort of, the blood type itself doesn't change, but who you're compatible with might. Okay. Ellen, I appreciate you taking the time to shoot the shit with us. No, it was fun. Yeah. It was fun. And, uh, you know, I, I do think that um, vets need to be more comfortable with elephants and I don't know how to do that. And if you guys have ideas, let me know. People should, I, you know, I do think people are pretty comfortable calling me and I'm always happy to talk to them. Um, I think they, they're they also, you know, the people I talk to are pretty keen on, on trying new stuff. So, um, you know, change occurs slowly. But I, I do think that there's a need for a, a vet version of, PEM or EMA. Thank you for once again listening to this edition of Packy Chat. Appreciate you taking the time to listen to us. Again, Packy Chat's all about just conversation. Take things you heard, uh, things that might work for you, and use them. That's great. Things you don't agree with, well, that's okay too. We're not here to tell you there's one way to do it. We're just here to start conversation and have some thought. Once again, thanks a lot for listening to Packy Chat. We appreciate you listening. Mm -hmm.